Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Estás escuchando Échale Podcast, a podcast where we embrace our Latinidad. The good, the bad, the ugly. You love English? Te encanta el español? Well, we got a whole lot of Spanglish. A storytelling podcast. And like my mom used to say, Échale, mijo, que tú Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Echale Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Quintero, and I'm very excited today to be doing an interview in a podcast room here at Valley College in San Bernardino, which right. it's, it's very exciting and it's very different because it's studio-like, and I'm here with a great friend. Let me just go ahead and tell you a little bit about him before we go ahead and start stalking. Eddie Menacho, <laughs> which is a PA, graduated from Cal State San Bernardino, and and masters in USC. Welcome, Eddie. Thank you, thank you, Jose. I'm I'm happy to be here, man. We've been trying to do this for a long time. Yes. Uh, probably somewhere around COVID, you hit me up on Instagram, and we you were talking about doing this, and I'm just I'm happy, man. I'm happy to be here, and, and let's let's get this going, man. Let's, I'm just gonna go ahead and like put them on blast. We've been trying to do other projects too. That's for true. the <laughs> longest. I remember like five six years oh, ago, yes, he's yes. like, "Yo, bro, you speak really good Spanish," and I'm like, "That's right, bro. You we're gonna pay my student loans. Let's go." Yeah, that's right. That's right. Hey, we got a lot of things in the mix, man. Amen. We can, we can Amen. always we always keep it going forward for sure. You know what? But I'm excited to have you on the podcast today because one, you're a person that I've always looked up to when we were at Cal State San Bernardino. You and your brother. Yeah, you have a twin brother. You have Friend. been through so much in life that to meet both of you was literally an eye-opener. I'm like, these two have been through so much and are still persevering in life. And to see the growth that you've had from Cal State San Bernardino to what you're, you're doing, it's so on brand. You know, I always had a misconception, I'm not going to lie, of jocks. Just because I was never the popular kid in high school. Uh, I've always been like the theater nerd and whatnot. So for me... Neither was I. Oh, right? <laughs> you were. <laughs> to me, I wasn't a theater nerd, but uh -huh. no, yeah, I got you. Yeah, but to me when I'm like, all right, cool. Now we go to college and for the most part, all the people like in sports had their own parties and yeah, whatnot. Yeah. Like they hung out together. So when you and your brother came to work at the Career Center, I'm like, oh, I wonder how they're going to be. Are they going to be assholes? Or are they just going to be like the <laughs> bullies? Uh, because you uh, both were in, in the soccer, the soccer team. team. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and obviously to get to play soccer at a college level, you've definitely had to have a lot of dedication in your high school. Definitely. So you were definitely in varsity. So, you know, you That's come with right. all these mis misconceptions, all That's these true. traumas that I had as a kid. I was like, <laughs> you know, like, oh, there they are. Yeah, I didn't know about any of this. Yeah, but, <laughs> but no, no, I hear you. I'm saying it now. But you guys were amazing, supportive, out and about. You guys were for the community. And... One day, I, I forgot where we were. We I actually had a conversation with both of you, and I understood why you were both humble, hardworking, mature at such a young age. So I want to go ahead and start with your childhood. Tell me, how was Eddie uh, as a child? I'm yeah. going to leave Tony out of the equation. Yeah, yeah. So Tony is my brother. Shout out to Tony. I mean, I wish he could be here. We could both speak be speaking here. But, you know... 
it's hard to say that I that I matured. I was like a mature person my whole life. I, I can't I couldn't say that. I would say, you know, there was a mentor I had in my life. His name was Dr. LaHenry when I was at USC and he brought this moment to me and he was he had open door policy and I and I thank him for this. And I sat down with them and I was going through something and I sat down with him and he told me about what's called a Kairos moment. A Kairos moment mm-hmm. is it's a Greek word for something that changes in your life, a mm-hmm. pivotal moment that changes your life. And you can have multiple Kairos moments, right? It doesn't have to just be one, right? It could be, you know, you finding your profession, you finding the love of your life, you being able to change the projection of where you're going to go in your life. And for me, everything was always about soccer. My dad mm-hmm. played soccer. He always wanted me to play soccer. So my brother and I were, you know, we were the kids waking up at four to go for a run, wow. come back home, do our homework, go act to go to training and do extra trainings and, you know, practice on our weak foot and do all these kind of things to be successful in soccer. And then when we got to, you know, we did well in high school, we got in the varsity team, we, we went to college and played. And at 18, I didn't know anything other than soccer. My, my study methods in, in mm-hmm. soccer were the same as the people on the soccer team where, you know, I went and I, I literally just prepared 10 minutes before the class. Uh, I re- reviewed the chapter review or whatever it may be, uh-huh. go and not do well. All that to say, you know, I, I, that happened my first first quarter, second quarter, my dad got sick. Mm-hmm. And when my dad got sick, and my dad had been disabled for the last six years of, of his life. Um, and at that time when he got sick, it, it, was a, it was a shift change in that moment because he was always sick and he, you know, he would go to the doctor and he would come back home and he would be in, in bed for mm-hmm. a bit. He would take us to soccer practice and run around a, a little bit. And, and he would be in bed for two days. Um, that, and this is probably where it, where it stems, like my ability to to care for people. I did this mm-hmm. since I was 11, taking care of my dad, cooking for him, cleaning for him. If he called me for, and I was at a friend's house, I was like, I was gone in a second. I'm going to go yeah. check on my dad, you know. And But at 18, he got really sick. Uh, one, one day he woke up with a mask on his neck. And I remember thinking to myself, like, you know, at that time, my, my story, my, my mom and dad were, they met in Jersey. My dad's from Peru, my mom's from Cuba. They met in Jersey. There was a lot of things in, in our family that wasn't going the way that they wanted wanted to. They didn't want me to, to grow up in that environment. And so my dad literally drove a car from Jersey to San Diego where I was born. Mm. And so, you know, you, you grew up in California. California around a lot of Mexican culture and, and you know, Mexican culture. They have they know their cousins, their cousins' cousins and so yeah. on and so forth. They know all their tios and tias. And I didn't grow up with that. I didn't grow up with uncles, aunts. I know some distant uncles and people that would come and visit us in California, but I didn't grow up around that. I only grew up around my immediate family, and it was mm-hmm. always just us, and we struggled. But it was it was a struggle to get to a to a higher place uh, in society, and as far as like our socioeconomic status would always try mm-hmm. to grow, and and it was only us. So in and I didn't know anything about medicine, needless to say, like I had nobody to look up to. I had no mentorship other than my father, and and he was he taught me a lot. He was a very smart individual. He had. He read books for fun and mm. uh, taught me how to play chess when I was super young. He was just a very influential person. At 18, he had this mask on his neck, and I knew nothing about what was going on. You're like, oh, okay, he's sick. He doesn't look good. He's feeling weak. You know, are, one, you were, are you in San Diego was, still? No, no, no. Eight, I was 18, so I was at Cal State San Bernardino. Okay. And I remember one day uh, walking in. This is before he went to the hospital, and I started noticing you know, something was wrong with him. I walk in, it's before one of my games, one of my spring league games. I go in, and, and he's wrapping his whole leg with the ace bandage. He had already wrapped his whole left leg. Now he's wrapping his whole right leg from the bottom up. And I'm like, I've never seen this before, literally from the ankle all the way up to the to the thigh. And I'm like, you know, what's going on, Dad? What, you know, uh, you're hurting? What's going on? Mm-hmm. 
he's like, I'm just in pain, like deep pain. And, and if you're in medicine, you know, if deep seated pain, it's probably some type of bone pain and, and it's hard to point out. It's not a muscular thing. It's just super deep. And at that point you would imagine that you have to, you have to think cancer until proven otherwise. He went in, he had a mass on his neck a few weeks later. He went in, he got, he got uh, diagnosed with stage four cancer and within wow. a couple months he passed away. And at that time I knew nothing about medicine. I knew nothing about anything else I wanted to do, but soccer. And my whole life shifted because that was my idol. That was a person that would come and watch me at my soccer games and cheer us on and do all this kind of stuff. And I remember thinking to myself when I was sitting in that office with Dr. LeHenry and he said, you know, what's your Kairos moment, the, the Kairos mm -hmm. moment in your life? I said, the Kairos moment in my life was when my dad passed away because at that point, you know, there are certain things that, that happened in my life. And I think about this and when I'm reading books and I, and, I, and I love to read and there are certain books that stand out to me. There's a book called The Alchemist and it talks mm -hmm. about when you put your, your, your dream out into the universe, the universe conspires to help you achieve it. And I remember thinking to myself when my dad was passing away in the hospital and I was seeing this man that I saw and that I looked up to literally become a shell of himself, not remember my name and, you know, uh, become literally just bones. Mm -hmm. And it was just a, such a surreal thing because like I said, I, I only had my family. If I had uncles and aunts, I don't know if it would have been different and grandparents are always around. And if I had that, it maybe would have been different, but there was only five of us, me, my mm -hmm. brother, my sister, who I looked up to, uh, my sister, I called my mom for the first 10 years of my life because I, I, my mom and my dad were always at work mm -hmm. in San Diego, you know, we were just struggling to make a living. And then I have my mom and just my dad. So there's only five of us. So if one of us gets taken away, uh, you know, income goes in half. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom's struggling. She's the only person making money. And you got to do something. And I remember my dad, before he, when he was lucid, it was crazy. So he had he had cancer, right? And it was only he had two months to live. And they asked us, you know, uh, they asked us, uh, do you want to go with this this experimental therapy that was going on in Jersey, which is kind of coincident, you know, kind of yeah. coincident because they came back from there, yeah. And it was it was coming from Jersey, and we were like, oh yeah, you know, there's only a five percent chance that he's going to live. You want to do this? And obviously, you know, it's going to be expensive, but we couldn't just let it go like that, right? So mm -hmm. we took the five percent, and he was. Before we had started that experimental therapy and only lasted a couple of weeks, before that, he was forgetting our name. You walk in, he'd be hallucinating and he would be in extreme pain because the, the cancer had gone to his, to his bones. And I remember him sitting there with the morphine pump, just like trying to push the morphine pump. I'm like, daddy, it doesn't go more than however yeah. much, you know, every four hours. And I couldn't imagine what he was going through because he was a very tough guy. He was like a bulldog. And, and I remember, um, I remember when he was, he was getting the experimental therapy. There was a time I walked in because, you know, we would go and, go and visit. There was times I'd call, he'd be confused. This time, it was a few days before he passed away. He was the most lucid I had ever seen him. And I thought to myself as like a young kid, know nothing about medicine, oh, he's cured, you know, this, this guy's good. But I remember when he was, he was totally lucid, totally himself, yeah. funny, because my dad was such a funny person, uh, caring, loving, and he always told me, you know, he, we were, uh, he had asked me to get him some food. We got him some food. We got, we sat down and he taught us some like less, some lessons, like life lessons that he kind of knew that something was coming on, like something was going on. Uh, like he felt it, you know, and you could, you were there with him and you kind of, it was like a surreal moment. I was sitting there with my brother and he's like, you know, you have to make sure you take your time when you eat, like sit with your brother, talk to him because like, you never know when that ability is going to be taken away from you. And I remember he told me, he said, you know, the one thing I want you guys to do, no matter what happens to me, is take care of your mother, take care of your family. 
the day after he passed away, he passed away on June 8th, 2008. The day after he passed away, I had an interview at UPS. A week after that, I, had, I was a cashier. I got another job as a cashier. Mm-hmm. Two months after that, uh, after I had those jobs, I was working two jobs, getting ready to go into soccer camp. Mm. I had an accident where I was in the wrong place, wrong time. I got stabbed in my wow. hand. All these moments were like Kairos moments in my life. All happened at one, in one year, 2008. And at that moment, I couldn't play soccer because I, I, couldn't, I couldn't function. I got stabbed in my hand. I, I literally couldn't move my hand. So I had to have surgery. I had to go through this whole thing. This whole, it was too much of a risk for me to be on the field. Got kicked off the soccer team. Had to basically find myself, figure out what I was going to do with my life. And I ran into somebody. Thank God this happened. And this goes back to what I was saying in The Alchemist. And that in my life, I, I remember thinking to myself, like, I did not want what happened to my dad or happened to my brother and I that happened to other families. Cause really what happened was my dad had this mass on his neck. And if you, if you're in medicine, you would imagine that he has some, this is just not normal. It's like a softball on his neck, but because we didn't have the right insurance, it was waiting for him to get diagnosed. Mm. He would often tell me that he would go to the, to the, to the doctors and uh, doctors would, would label him as pain seeking. But at the time that for like three or four years, he was going through like extreme pain. He was having like night sweats and bone pain and he, all these symptoms are cancer because wow. he had cancer when he was 36, he had a kidney cancer. So he was at risk already for having a re- recurrent cancer yeah. and people would, people would label him a pain, a pain pill seeker, a pain seeker, whatever it may be. Yeah. And he would just have to, to deal with it. Thanks. And, and so at that time, you know, I, I remember thinking to myself, like, man, how, how does somebody have all the symptoms of cancer, have the symptoms of someone that's legitimately ill? How does he, how does he just go by without being caught, you know? Yeah. And that's what's called the health disparity. So after my dad passed away, there was a person that was working in the office of kinesiology in, in Cal State San Bernardino, and she asked us, she said, you know, my brother and I were looking sad because we're always, like, yeah. we're always, like, happy people, and, like, we get along with people and whatnot, but... At that time, that was literally our idol. It was like someone that we looked up to so much. It was, it was the most surreal thing you could ever imagine because it's not only hurting us, it's also hurting your whole family. You know, I, I slept next to my mom to just keep her company for months just to go through that. As know? a man, how do you cope with that? Because it's hard. I mean, if we go back to history, men aren't really taught to show emotion. So how do you, did you deal with death and with an idol of another man that you yeah. admire? Yeah, you know, I had never seen death in my in my life other than, you know, to, to that extent. I mean, obviously, I didn't have any family members mm-hmm. that, I, that I was close to to even recognize that. But when that happened, I think one thing that most people do is they just go to work. My dad was a very, like, uh, old school, you just put your head down and grind, you know, and, and you just deal with what's in front of you. I remember when my dad was sick and you knew it was the end it was like the last day or two he had he had a, a brain bleed and they told us mm-hmm. that he wasn't going to make it they literally came in the room and they were like this is the kind of stuff that we see and we just say sorry and we're like what like what do you even mean i don't even know what's going on we had no clue at that point on. do you become numb of the situation or, or like yeah it's, some, it's just a sur- it's like a surreal thing you never think that you're going to go through it and it shocks you and i would never cry in front of my family because mm-hmm. i i didn't want to be that person there was no other i was a little i'm a little older than my brother uh-huh. And I took the the younger brother, right? Th- then my brother. No, so I have my, I have my Tony. I have Tony uh-huh. and my sister. Okay. And so I never, 
I never cried in front of them. I would mm. cry in the bathroom or I'd cry when I got home mm. or what have you because my mom was struggling. Mm. And the last thing that my dad, because my dad had gone through multiple things that he had, he had thought he was like on his, on his deathbed. And, mm-hmm. and he would tell me, he's like, make sure you take care of your mom. Make sure you're, you're the idol for, for your family because, you know, if it's not me, I mean, who else is going to do it, you know? And so I would, I would try to take that role. That's why I went to that job interview literally the day after he passed away. I remember writing wow. like rest in peace to my dad on the, on the application, just like as like, or whatever the paper was that they gave us at UPS. Mm-hmm. Um, and how you cope with it. I mean, y- y- you, you go to what, you know, you know, you literally, I remember, I remember when my, my dad was in his last few days and I was sitting with my brother outside of the hospital. I was like, you know, my dad was always about, he had a, he had a saying, he said, focus on your goals and never forget. And he's like, you know, the one thing that we could do to help like his memory live on is you, you go and you achieve the things that you need to achieve. And one was soccer. But once we figured out that, you know, he had this health insurance that didn't get him the, the, uh, the diagnosis as fast as he wanted. He had this mass on his neck. It's all the disparities. Oh, check this. So he had a mass on his neck, clearly had some type of issue going yeah. on. They put him in the, they put him in a nursing home across the street from the hospital. And I would go check up on him and he had this, still had this mask. I'm like, hey, guy, like, what are they doing for you? He's like, they're just, give, they're just giving me pain pills and um, wow. they're, just, they're just waiting for the insurance to clear so I can get my biopsy. So the uh, same biopsy. system failed him. Yeah, and, and sadly, you know, once he got diagnosed, it was stage four, he was really sick, they put him in the ICU and he ended up passing away really quickly. But, you know, when I, when I knew nothing about health disparities, I came back mm-hmm. to Cal State, back to, sorry, to, to, to sidestep with that one individual that was in the front, in the front desk at kinesiology. She invited us to do a, a research with, in health disparities. And I had no clue about what health disparities were. But once I learned about it, I was like, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense. Like what my dad would tell me or what my dad would experience or what my family experienced. I had, a, had another buddy that was more well-off than our family, had, had a family member with a very similar diagnosis with their parents still living. And I'm just yeah. like, oh man, like this is, this is just crazy how this, how this happens. And so we entered the medical field to essentially make sure that people don't, so we can bridge the gap between health disparities. And so our goal, I remember looking at my brother, we were at a conference and we saw this, this individual, Richard Carmona, he was a past uh, US Surgeon General speak and he was talking about his story and how he had overcome adversity and all these kind of things. He was one of 13 kids or, and, and he ended up becoming the US Surgeon General. And we thought to ourselves, you know, if, he, if someone like that can do it, we can do the same discipline and same attributes that we had in soccer and, and apply it to school, right? And yeah. studying and, and, and pursuing medicine. And needless to say, once we did that, I mean, everything took off from that point. That was my Kairos moment. That was yeah. the moment in time that I was like, okay, like switch on soccer. I, I believe it likes wholeheartedly that sports can teach you so much about life. Yeah. Even and, and it could be anything that you're passionate about. It could be theater, it could be whatever, but sports in general, it teaches you discipline, mm-hmm. teaches you teamwork. It teaches you work ethic. It teaches you to understand how to fail and, and come back and, and persevere. Um, teaches you how to work as a team. There's okay. just so many aspects of, of, of sport that you can apply to your life and, and be successful if you do it right, right? Because there's a way you do sport right and there's a way you do sport wrong. Yeah. And so we basically applied the same thing we did there, brought it to clubs at Cal State, um, 
created the it, conference at Cal State. Yeah, I want to get to that in a moment, but I want to really reiterate uh, how amazing and the, the, the way life works. So many people, when they experience death, especially of a loved one, they'll immediately go into this dark place or, uh, um, you know, a place of anger where they're just angry with the world. And what I'm hearing from you and your brother, uh, what you're saying is you weren't. You took it as a, okay, this is the teachings. You literally took his teachings and have been applying them to life. And since day one or day two, since you started applying, you said, how do I honor his memory? How do I continue fighting for myself, for my family? At any point, did you seek therapy to take care of yourself? Because right now you're running on autopilot on what he's taught you all these years yeah. and on survival mode to a certain extent. But at any point in time, did you take a step back and say, I need to fix me too. I so, never healed that 18 year old yeah. or coped with it. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure if I ever, I ever dealt with like, if I ever went to therapy for that specifically, that's a good question. I think, I think I feel that as I went on that journey and into medicine and I started my, both my brother and I were accomplishing different things. We had good support from my family. My, my sister was great. My mom was great. You know, after we got through our grieving, it was like, yo, you know, we're cohesive as, as anybody, you know, even though we were small, mm -hmm. we were very close, very, very close. And so if anybody was going through anything, like if I said something's wrong with my kid right now, my, my mom will be there my sister will be there. Like somebody will be there. Mm -hmm. Even if you have to drive six hours, eight hours, fly, whatever, like that's just what it is. That's how we are. You know, that's how my dad raised me. And so through the support there, but I think the other the other thing you know therapy comes through talking to people right yeah. like therapy is that's essentially what it is you talk to people and you talk about your problems and what comes into fruition at that point that's this is really interesting i, I had a I had a coach that i look up to so much his name is gerard solizano he was my high school s soccer coach mm -hmm. and i've had the privilege to to coach with him afterwards but i was coaching at a few other high schools and the reason at the time, people don't understand and the influence people have in your life. And a lot of times it's just like one person that, that does that. Yeah. And sometimes you don't even realize it's that person until way later in your life. You're like, oh man, my, my dad taught me that. Or this person taught me that. Thank God they told me that. Because intuitively I'm like taking it in and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm applying that here and I'm applying it there. But if you reflect on it and take the time to think critically and think to yourself, this is where I learned that. And now mm -hmm. that you're saying this, 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 I feel that after my dad passed away, I, we were delve deep in in soccer and i was angry i was a very angry person that's partially partially the reason why um i got kicked off the soccer team was because i had gone through this injury my dad was my dad was uh gone you know people would bring up problems about whatever whatever they were going through and i thought to myself okay this is nothing i just i literally just saw yeah. my dad pass away and i was just, i was very angry inside fast forward maybe within a year yeah, within a year, I went to a soccer game to watch some of my friends play at, at, at Chafee College. And Gerard Solzano was there, the high school, my high school mm -hmm. soccer coach. And he was sitting next to both my brother and I, and, and we're watching, and we see him. And like, oh, we, so we go over there and we say, hey, Solo, we call him Solo. Hey, Solo, how's it going? Whatever. And we tell him what's going on. We say, hey, no, you know, he's like, he asked, you know, how, how's your dad? And we're like, oh, he, you know, he just passed away a mm -hmm. few months ago. And he's like, this is one of those individuals that I look up to so much because when you talk to him, he makes you feel known. Yeah. Like there's people that can really listen to you and people that are listening to respond or listening to listen. It's a big difference. And 
his presence just makes you feel like, okay, this guy's really listening to me. Like finally there's somebody that wants to hear what I say because a lot of times, you know, even at a funeral or afterwards or whatever it may be, you're talking to people and they're saying, let me know if you need anything, call yeah. me. It's like, do you, do you really mean that? Or like who, who actually is listening to your problems or the issues mm -hmm. that you're going through? And we start telling them what's going on with us and, and our family was struggling. And the first thing he said was, why don't you come coach with us? come coach come coach uh, high school with us so we did and honestly it was one of the things that just that when you're around a person like that mm -hmm. which goes back to the idea of like you're the average of the five people you put yourself around right you know it's the idea that if you hang around the barbershop long enough you're gonna end up with a cut and when I was around him the goodness that he had for people the discipline that he had for for um for the students that he had or the athletes that he had, the, the accountability, responsibility, the endless work ethic. I mean, there's so many lessons that this man would teach people that I was being taught the same thing when I was in high school, but I didn't realize it as I was on the flip end of it because first I was a student athlete yeah. being coached by him and then actually coaching it and seeing kids that were very much like me mm -hmm. and seeing what the, the, the lessons that he taught was so crucial to me at that time was because I was going through so much that I needed an outing and I didn't need any outing, right? Yeah. Cause I could have taken an outing in drugs and alcohol and women and whatever. Mm -hmm. I could have done any of that, but I took an outing in, in something that I love, which was soccer. And I did play soccer, but I think coaching soccer was a whole different phenomenon because you see kids that also go through their own traumas cause everybody has their own mm -hmm. traumas. And it just changed for me. There was a moment too. And when I was at, I was at Cal state, I was talking to somebody and I remember I was holding on to this grudge for a long time because a lot of trauma happened in that, in that year. I lost my dad. I got stabbed. I had surgery. I got kicked off the soccer team. But then like, were quick. you still in school at Cal State San Bernardino or did you take a sabbatical? No, I, I stayed. Okay. Yeah, I stayed in school. And, um, and I remember meeting, I remember talking to, before I got, I, I got released, I was talking to a, one of the, one of the players there and I was telling him my story and he starts telling me his story. Mm. And his story was so much worse than mine. Mm. And I was like, okay, this is like clearly, clear as day, just like a one example. I'm one and there's always going to be a worse story. Yeah. Um, and so I thought to myself, I'm like, okay, I need to stop, stop like harboring this because though my story is bad and I have, I've gone through a lot of different things, like there's people worse off and everybody has the right to be mad about, mm -hmm. even if it's a small thing or, or what have you, but those perspectives combine were huge for me and in right after I stopped coaching um, I went I was gone on to pursue medicine along that journey in medicine I think I tell this to students all the time like you have to enjoy your journey and I'm sure you did this yeah. in 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 radio where like you you're going through the ranks of growing growing as a as a radio host and you're meeting all these different people and all these different people are giving you feedback and you can take everything with a with a grain of salt and say you know I like this I like that or whatever whatever it may be yeah. In medicine, you meet so many people along the way. I mean, I, I'm, it was crazy, man. I, 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 both my brother and I did uh, a congressional internship, which is one of the hardest internships to get in the U.S. And just along that way to, to get to that point, we met so many people that were just super influential. Mm -hmm. And you understand that at that time when you get to that point, you're like, even then, there's just always more levels and more things yeah. to learn. And when you get there, you're like, okay, well, what do you do at that point when you get to that point? You have to seek people that know more than you because if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Exactly. And so um, 
just having the amount of mentors that I had in my life that I saw in that in that journey is what gave me like the feedback yeah. to get through all this stuff. But yeah. the Kairos moment that you were mentioning, which is your father passing away, do you think that also allowed you to internalize a lot of the information and uh, that your mentors were seeking? Because I'm literally trying to think at 18 year old, as an 18 year old, and even 2025, 20, like the level when I met you guys, the level of maturity that you guys showed, or the level of interest, whether it be in education, obviously you guys had a reason and a purpose. You guys just absorbed information and analyzed it and you valued it more and that's something that i'm trying to now understand i'm like oh shoot the power of reading the power of i mean uh, as a radio host you have to listen and not hear and mm -hmm. so many people are just hearing the noise but not mm -hmm. listening and analyzing each sentence that's coming out of somebody's uh, mouth but you started doing that as like at your kairos moment Or were you always like that? Hola, ¿qué tal? Te saluda José Quintero y espero que estés disfrutando de este capítulo de Échale Parques. Pero vamos a platicar de un tema que te va a encantar. Porque si eres padre de familia, si eres estudiante o si eres maestro o maestra, pon mucha atención porque te quiero contar sobre la beca nacional de hacer de McDonald's. Desde 1985, McDonald's ha otorgado más de 33 millones de dólares en becas. Y esta vez no va a ser la excepción porque... Este año McDonald's está dando 500 mil dólares en becas y puedes ganarte una beca de hasta 100 mil dólares. Pero ahora más que nunca ayudar a estudiantes hispanos a hacer más que las generaciones anteriores, a hacer más de lo que creían ser capaz y a hacer más de lo que pensaban que era posible por sí mismos, por su gente, por su cultura y por un mejor futuro. Para más información sobre la beca nacional hacer de McDonald's, visita mcdonalds.com de Diagonal hacer, aprende más, porque puedes ganar una de 30 becas. No, no. Yeah, I would I would say as a kid I was always very aware mm. of my surroundings, like very very aware. Very aware of my feelings, very aware of That's awesome. things that I that I liked, things that I didn't like. Um and I think that you you have these like innate abilities. Like if you have kids, whenever you have kids, they say you don't raise all the kids the same because they're all different. Mm -hmm. They all have different personalities and you could just see it. Like my son's a builder, he's a individual. He wants to do everything himself. He's gonna be like his own boss. But if Entrepreneur. I <laughs> if I try to make him into somebody that's like a like totally different than his personalities, it doesn't align with him. Yeah. And so when I was growing up I had that but what I think too is that if you supplement that with like the right that's the reason why you have to recognize that once you recognize it For you, you're you're extroverted. You're very eccentric. You're very um, outgoing, and so you take that and you put you in a place that you can thrive in. That yeah. you put you in an opposite place. You're not going to thrive in it. You're still that person, but you're you're not going to thrive in it. And so I would, what I would do is I'd try to put myself in situations where I I recognize that like I want to be the person that is this way, and my my idea of that would be that. If I'm self-aware and I can and I could take in information about whatever it may be, I want to be able to to conform that and do what I need to with that. For example, in soccer, there was a lot of times that I didn't do well in soccer. A lot of times that I got kicked off a team or didn't kicked off a team, didn't make a team that mm -hmm. I wanted to make. I was aware enough to be like, okay, well, what is it that I'm not doing that I need to improve on because I need to. I will do it yeah. if I have to be faster. I'll, I'll I'll do the plyos if I have to be better with my left foot, I'll do that. I have to attack more, score more goals, do more cross, whatever it may be, I'll do. 
if I have to change my attitude, I'll do it. And I was that from a, for a, a, a very early on. I was like yeah. that. And it's funny because you'll see people that are just not self-aware enough to be able to make those mm-hmm. decisions, right? Yeah. And and right. or and the other thing, you know, Deepak Chopra says, you know, you don't go looking for life's life's answers. You let life bring you to the answers because sometimes you could read a book mm. when you're 18 years old and it'll hit you in one way. But when you're 30 years old and you're a parent, it'll hit you in a totally different way. The alchemist being one of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'll hit you in a totally. Yeah, exactly. I probably read the alchemist when I was 15, 16. I had no clue. Yeah. Right. And then when you I read it when I was 19, 20 years old, I'm like, OK, this makes a lot of sense. Like yeah. this makes this makes total sense and aligns with like what I want to do. You just have like that ability to memorize quotes. And that's what I'm always fascinated, fascinated about. Like I love memorization, but I don't think I can remember the lyrics to a whole song. And you're over here remembering verses from several books that you've read. So I find that uh, awesome that you're able to do that. I want to go into, I definitely still want to get into the conference, the work that you're doing here for the community, but now as a father, what is one of the teachings that you're teaching or you want to teach your son and your daughter that, you know? This is this is interesting. I, I, I don't know the the right way to raise a parent or raise a parent, sorry. Raise to, a to, child. To raise a child and, and be a parent. I don't know what the right way is. But the way I try to live my life is I look at people that I see are good parents, mm-hmm. the parent that I want to be, right? Because mm-hmm. everybody everybody's definition of success as a parent or success is whatever is in their own eyes it's subjective right it's your own mm-hmm. vision for me i look at certain people that i that i admire and i see their children too because it's not just the person <laughs> right because you could see them as a soccer player or a radio host or what have you a doctor yeah and they could be a great doctor but they could be a terrible parent mm-hmm. or they can be you know they could tell you that they can tell you, you have to take everything from like, you have to be very granular with it, right? Because you could say, okay, well, um, he's a doctor, very successful. Tell you how you raise your kids. Good. Well, how you raise your kids. This is the way I raise my kids. Cool. That's the way I want to raise my kids. No, let's look at the kid. What is mm-hmm. the kid doing? How is the kid? Is he sociable? So that's a reflection he, of. Right, exactly. Yeah. It's like, is it actually working, right? Then you talk to the kid. This is what, this is one thing that I've done is I train. I still train with like professionals. I still train with, um, D1 college athletes, D2 college athletes, mm. um, people trying to go pro. And and they're good kids. Like, there's some really good kids. And they're 18, 17 years old. So I'm, I'm like, 15 years or older, uh-huh. right? And and I ask them, I'm like, these are good kids. Like, they're, they're very, their work ethic, they're very respectable, social, just good, you know? And I like to ask them, I'm like, hey, how were you raised? Mm. Like, did you read books when you were growing up? Were, you, were they strict on you? Did they, you know, what did you do? Like, literally from the... From the from the get, like what did what would you what would they do when you got home? What would yeah. they do when you when you got in trouble? Like I'm very curious about this. And then you take the, you can't do it from one, like an end of one end, meaning like the number of one. It has to be multiple people. And once you start seeing the trends, you're like, okay, well this makes kind of sense. Yeah. So one thing that I do, that I think is really important that my dad did to me. And sometimes my dad was over the top, and we know how this yeah. is as Hispanic Hispanic parents. Uh, they were just it was just different back in the day. And I don't, and I don't aim to get to that point, but, but the, 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 the idea of it is what I want. And that's discipline. I think discipline is such a huge factor in people's life because discipline mm-hmm. isn't just like, I'm going to beat you with my belt or mm-hmm. I'm going to whatever, hit you with the chancla or anything like that. No, it's not, it's not just that. It's like, can you be disciplined enough in your attitude? 
Can you be disciplined enough in your work ethic? Can you be disciplined in your relationship? Can you be uh-huh. disciplined with your diet? Can you be disciplined? Like, discipline goes in so many different ways. It's, it's, it's wild. And so how you teach discipline is, is very interesting to me because I don't know the answer, but mm. all I know is the way I was raised. And so I'll say, yeah. oh, my dad, if, my da- if I did that in front of my dad, oh, my <laughs> God, like God knows it'd be like the world to pay. And so for me, I think when you have actions, you have consequences. Mm-hmm. And I think I agree. And when you if you have no if you have no consequence for your action, for example, if my son uh, is acting a certain way and he still wants to watch TV, I'm like, OK, well, you know, I'm going to turn the TV off. And then if I don't follow up with that, I'm like, OK, I'm just using words. I'm like, no, I'm going to turn the TV off. And you turn the TV off, you throw the fit. And if I go back to turn on the TV, that means that I'm kind of giving in. So I'm yeah. like, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I, wanna, I want to like be a man of my word, right? Like if I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. But if you, but if you are um, a good person mm-hmm. and you do, some, you do what we're asking you, then, you know, it is what it is. And, and, and you know, you just as much as the consequence of, of bad is much consequence of good. And so I think it's it's important to 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 stress that. And like I said, I don't know I don't know the answers, but I think yeah. I think that's one. I think two. The other thing that I that I really want to do for my son is to make sure that uh, he's sociable, that he can be likable, that he can be um, that he can play well with others. Because at a certain point in time, when they when they get old enough, if they don't have that quality, it's it's very yeah. tough. Especially now with social media and the the ability of like. Um, or not the ability, but the, the prevalence of depression and, and all this, this, this anxiety that, that kids are having because they're always on their phones and they're mm-hmm. not really socially interactive. So something simple like that, right? So, I, I mean, I went to a party one time and my buddy was, he had kids and um, his, his son would, could not play with the other kids. And I'm like, hey, do you ever take your kid to the park? Mm-hmm. Like, no, no, he never goes to the park. He's always on the iPad. He's always on the iPad. I'm like, no, you got to take him to the park, man. Like simple. simple and that dad. is so hard. I mean, I'm not a parent, but like as a dog parent, yeah. <laughs> you know, like when the when somebody tells you something about your dog or about your kid, they're yeah. like, oh, no, not my kid. You're wrong. Yeah. Like I know how I'm raising exactly, my kid. Exactly. Yeah. They get very defensive about it. Yeah. You, you know, you got to you have to also be that's that goes to a personality trait of like you just got to be open. I'm very yeah. open. I'm so open about like different ideas, different things. And if I'm wrong, I'm OK if I say I'm wrong. Like I. And that's why when I open it up, I say, I, I really don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. I, cause I'm not, I'm, I've never been a parent of a two year old in the past. I've never been a parent of a five year old. And even if I was, it would be that I did it one time. If you did anything one time and think that you did it well, you're probably <laughs> not being honest with yourself, right? If I told you to go play soccer and you only, you never played before and you only play once yeah. and you're going to say that you're good at it, that's probably not. But yeah, you, you, and yeah, it's 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 hard to say, man. It's hard to say what what the right thing is. But for mm-hmm. my for my kids, I just try to look at the people that I look up to. Um, I, obviously, I read books and I do my own research and I do this kind of stuff. But um, I try to instill some of the good things that my that my family grew up in, or raised mm-hmm. me in, and that I that I've been able to apply in my life. And so, I think as a father, that's it's a different feeling. It's a different feeling for sure. And, and mm-hmm. it honestly makes you more appreciative. I actually don't recognize, didn't recognize some of the learnings that I had as a, as a child uh-huh. or even as an adult, the things that I apply until I was a, as a, as a parent. And then you're like, oh, wow. Okay. 
this is what my dad would talk about. Yeah, this you is know? what he was trying to yeah, teach Yeah, this me. is what he was trying to teach They've me. definitely done a lot of good, and I'm sure your father would be proud, and I'm sure so many people have told you in the past that he would be proud, and I'm sure your mom is proud because you not only... Um, I, I don't think you can ever overcome. You just kind of live with that pain, I'm pretty sure. But you go to Cal State San Bernardino, and you could have just gone and finished school, kinesiology, maybe still gone to PA school, but you definitely wanted to make an impact and wanted to make a difference. Yeah. And by that, I mean you started what is now one of the biggest medical conferences in Southern California. If I have to say so myself, because I've I've been a part of filming it or as, you know, helping out because it grew up out of something so small. And as a as a way to get the community involved and students, Latino students specifically, the resources to get into medical schools. Talk to me about this conference. Yeah, it was crazy. You know, like (laughs) when I was getting into medicine, my brother and I didn't even know Hispanics were even in medicine. We thought it was a white thing. Of course. Uh, legitimately speaking so then when somebody told us about medicine oh we went to that to that uh, research that research that that uh, person on the front front desk her name was Sarah got us into and this this guy by the name of Ricky Juarez was there and Ricky Juarez was the president of AMSA American Medical Student Association oh I think I remember and we thought to ourselves like what there's a Hispanic that's the president of the medical this medical thing we have no idea what it is so we email him and we're like, hey, this is this is who we are. We're trying to get into medicine. He's like, hey, come to this uh, Ronald McDonald house. Uh-huh. So we go to the Ronald McDonald house, which is basically a, a place that you serve you mm-hmm. serve food to to cancer pa- to families of cancer patients mm-hmm. in the in the children's hospital. And that's where we first meet Ricky. And we're like, Ricky's a, he's a stud, man. He's like such <laughs> a go getter. I mean, if I would want anybody on my team to start anything in my life, it'd be Ricky Juarez. And and uh, Shortly after that, he's like, hey, there's a conference up in UC Davis. If you guys want to go, there's like a bus. We're going to take it. And blah, blah. Never been to a conference before. Never been around like medical people before yeah. or any of that. So we go on this bus. We go to UC Davis. Beautiful town. Beautiful conference. It's one of the biggest conferences in the nation. And they fly people from all over. Mm-hmm. Is where we saw Richard Carmona speak. And so we saw Richard Carmona. My brother and I looked at each other. We're like, oh, this, is what, this is what we're going to do with our lives. On the way back from that conference, Wow. We're coming down. Not a Kairos moment right there. It is a Kairos. <laughs> I was a Kairos moment. And because the Kairos moment of like my dad was like a shift in like what I wanted to like. A, it was a shift in my life that I was like, okay, life is short. Yeah. This is this it's is a my, realization of like, yourself and lim- how much time you have on this yeah, earth. Reality, like a straight reality check. The Richard Carmona Kairos moment is when we looked at each other. We said we could, we could do this. Like we can, we can go forward. And we on our way back. We're like, hey, why, why doesn't Cal State or San Bernardino have like a medical conference or anything like that? At the time in San Bernardino, there was only one pre-med officer or pre-med counselor. Mm-hmm. And to, for you to be able to get to that counselor would be like, it'd be ridiculous. I mean, you imagine how many people are trying to get into medical school. Yeah. And that's not even PA school, not talking about PT school, none of that, just, just med school, which they could do med school and PA school. But to have one person that's specialized in all of that is probably, probably un unfair yeah not only that but the person's a teacher he's a bio teacher so they're not a pre-med counselor there's there's counselors at all these schools cal state san Bernardino was the only cal state school in the whole cal state system that didn't have a pre-med office at that time mm-hmm. we didn't have a pre-med office so all these people okay. that wanted to go and serve their serve their community had no clue how to how to do it so mm-hmm. all these people would spend their money go to school try to get in on their own which 
I have a we have a business now, Brainbox Brain Med, which we help students get into medical school, get into pay school, and we've done that to some of the top schools in the country. And we realize that if these kids were to gone by themselves, it'd be very very difficult to do to do so, especially because you're young, you don't yeah. know, really know what's going on, especially if you're first generation, your parents never did it, what have you. And so we're coming back and we're like, okay, well we should we should start a conference. So Ricky Juarez, Rick Cardova, my brother and I, we sat at a Starbucks literally Founders the whole right summer, there. every day. We made a business plan. We shot it to the president, uh, uh, Dr. Carning at that time. Yeah, he was getting ready. He was getting ready to leave. He's like, this isn't a good idea. This is a great idea, and I feel like we really need this. He's like, go down to ASI. They'll supply you with with fourteen thousand dollars, and uh, to start getting this whole thing going. We got funding. We went to IEHP, all the big, all the big health plans, United mm-hmm. Healthcare, um, Kaplan, Princeton Review, went to all these places, got funding, created a marketing team, created a, a communications team, logistics team, outreach and all team. All students. All students. No, not one professor was was mm-hmm. behind us I at this remember. time. So people are like. My brother and I and Ricky and, and Rick, we would dress up in a, in a suit and tie, go to all the conferences in California and meet these people. And we'd have a pitch and we'd always and we try to stand out. So we would always wear blue. We'd all wear blue. And oh, that's and coyote uh, color right there. Yeah, exactly. So we would come out and and we would give our pitch, you know, our, our pitch on why we were creating this conference and why it was needed in Cal State San Bernardino. And sure enough, we got like three to four hundred professionals to come out. We had six to seven hundred attendees. Mm-hmm. That was and the first year. That was the first year, and so then the president came that that year, and the ne- the new president was coming, Dr. Tomas Morales. Morales. Yeah. And I'm getting the chills right now. Yeah, this is he, a beautiful story. And he he comes out, uh, and he's like, "Man, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. Like Puerto what, Rican what, what's over going, here. What's going on here? Yeah. And we're like, okay, cool. I'm like, okay, cool. Jazz, so yeah. we're like, so we're like, yeah, we're but we're, we, you know, we hosted this conference. He's like, it's only you guys. He's like, yeah, it's on the, it's on the us. It's all students, student ran, and we do this for X, Y, Z. You know, really, what we need is a, is a, is a pre med office because we're gonna leave, yeah. and this is just gonna go to whoever. At that point, you were junior, seniors. We we're, we we're juniors, so we ran it for like two, two years. Yeah. And I think we stayed after for another, another year. He put aside a, a salary to create a pre med office, which is the HPAC Health Professionals mm-hmm. Advisory Committee or whatever, I don't know yeah, what the yeah. C stands for, uh, to basically have, make sure that they can give advice to I people that are there. pursuing. I, I was like, wait, I worked there. Yeah. I did work there. <laughs> like, yeah. Age, yeah, Leslie was the director. At Leslie the was the director. And I was there as a counts, as a helping students get into med school, looking at their pre-qualifications, meeting yep. with them. But I was only there for three months. So shout out to Leslie who allowed me, who Leslie's hired amazing. me. And then allowed me to go chase my dreams because at that time was when I left. Yep. to to LA to so then they dream. so they they created that made sure that the the conference is is held but more importantly not just that the conference is held but to make sure that people had the access to make sure that they knew what they were getting yeah. into and to meet people like you and say hey can you just look over my stuff yeah. I don't have to do this by myself because it's it's just crazy how that goes but how that goes down and how that didn't even occur until 2012 which is is just wild 2012 yeah. 2013 which is wild to me but so we did that conference and that and that went well now, after we went to USC, this is a different story. We, uh, after we came from USC, this is 2018, no, 2018, 2019. We were getting ready to finish at USC. They asked yeah. us to come back and speak into a workshop. We, we came. I went that year. 
Yeah, we, I, we saw I, you. I, I, we, they hired us uh, to record it. Yeah, yep, yeah and yep. that's where I saw you guys, and I'm like, wow. Yeah. I, I didn't even know you guys were still like involved with it, but of course, you guys are the founders. Yeah, and you guys were going to USC, mm -hmm. and it was it was amazing to see you, and that's the last time I've seen you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and so we go back there, we go back there, and I don't know if you were there when this happened, but we saw Ricky there. Ricky yes. Juarez there. Yes, and Ricky was two shades darker, and I'm like. Yo, Ricky, what's what's going on, man? Are you did you go to medical school? What's going on? He's like, Oh no, this this uh thing fell through and so on and so forth. And he didn't end up going. And I mm -hmm. thought to myself, man, like someone like that, Ricky was yeah. a stud stud. And I thought someone like that would be a clear into medical school. And not only that, not only that, not that he wouldn't just go to medical school, but he's someone that the community really needs. Yes. You're talking about somebody that knows his community, someone that grew up here someone that would love to serve your mom my mom mm -hmm. and i would love for him to do that but he he fell through the cracks and i remember reviewing i i i contacted him i said man what how how does this happen so yeah. we created this conference and this helps people know how to get in like know the from the baseline how to get in but to actually apply is a whole different thing which is why we created brainbox which was to make sure that no th there's a there's a link that's missing because yeah. you can know everything right you know how to get a degree you know the requirements to be whatever but there's intricacies in there that you that separate you on how to sell yourself compared to the person next to you that yeah. gets that at their at their at their university or what have you and i think that's why you said that i you want your kid to be social and i think that's one of the things that brainbox uh, allows you it, it, it combines like the study habits and how you're supposed to be studying for the MCAT, but it also gives you like that social skill because at the end of the day, they're looking for a 360 person. And I wouldn't want like a doctor who's able to communicate and right. not, uh, 100%, you know, 100%. No. So for Brainbox, our biggest thing in, in Brainbox is not just like getting them, you know, just to be accepted. We do teach them how to sell themselves. We mm -hmm. help them with their personal statement, the resume, all these kinds of things. But it's more so how to become a holistic individual that you can understand cultures, you can understand policies, you can understand politics, you know um, what it's like to serve the homeless, mm -hmm. you know what it's like to be around disabilities. We help them gain their, their experience. So they're a holistic individual that when you're standing in front of a patient, you can in some way do your best to relate, even if you're not from the same culture, even if you're not, mm -hmm. you don't have a ton of experience with them, but you have some little experience in your life that we've helped you. And because we do weekly talks and we do all these kind of things to help grow them as individuals to make sure that they can serve the community to be better people. Question. Basically. So talk to me about Brainbox, because when did this initiative start? How did it come about? And then following up with that question, it sounds more like it's a mentorship coach, a life coach type of uh, program. Not sure if it's just specifically focused for med school, but if any other individual would like to uh you know, apply or be a part of Brainbox, is that also a possibility? So, so you know, people have approached us to do like just plain mentorship as far as just mentor, life coaches, what oh. have you. But we do mostly just med school and PA school, mostly PA school. Um, but the idea behind Brainbox, when we first started, we, on our whole journey, the first when we were deciding that we were going to go into medicine, people will tell you, you know, you have to have a you have to have a 4.0 to yeah. to get into medical school or get into PA school, whatever it may be. And we're like, okay, well, I had a 2.8, 2.7. I had no idea on how to study, I, no clue. And so we started surrounding ourselves around very smart individuals teaching us how to study. And so we got all these study techniques, got it down, got it pat. It was like, a, for us, studying and taking a test was like, was like game day on soccer. It's like, Dang. you gotta prepare, right? You gotta yeah. prepare, 
for for game day. And every game day is different. Every team that you play is different. The film that you review is different. The way you approach the the, the team is different. The attack, Damn. the defense, all that stuff is different. So then, the way you prepare is like. And then we would come. My brother would be like, "Oh, it's game day! Boom!" Like, damn, look at that. Fist it and let's go. We, we knock it out. One of the few and, people that I know is excited for a test day. Yeah. We were, all the rest of us were like, "Yeah." Oh. And people, no, and people get and people get super anxious. Yeah, exactly. And the reason why you get anxious is because you're not ready, right? If I went to a game day and I was like, "Not nah, fit. I didn't do my. I didn't. I wasn't running well. I wasn't playing well. Didn't stretch. I wasn't any of that stuff." You come in, you're like, "Oh my god, I'm about to get. My, I'm about to get beat right yeah. now." And this is not a fun moment. But if you get to the test day and you feel prepared and you feel like you really know your stuff, like you know as much as the teacher knows in this at this point in time, at this point in your life, maybe not in, the, in two months or three months or six months, you're going to know just as much. But at this point in time, I know exactly what I need to know. Yeah. And I know it very well that I could teach it. To, and I have. That's part of our study plan. And when you get to that point, the anxiety is always there. I mean, of I've course. prepared for, prepared for a, a ton of games and played in front of thousands of people. And... Anxiety is always there, but if you are prepared and you've actually prepared, you either pre- you either prepare to fail or you fail to prepare. Mm. And so, if you know how to prepare, by the time game day comes, you're like, okay, anxiety's down. I'm just ready to perform. Like, let's just it's a performance. You know, yeah. I show up. I'm like, hey, how did how did I perform today on this test? And so, when we initially came out with Brainbox, it was like, let's teach people how to learn because people mm. don't know how to study. They don't know how to have a study technique. We ask people, hey, what's your study technique for Monday through Friday? They're like no study technique. I need to. I need to get like lessons on this because yeah. I feel like I, maybe I could apply it to like reading. You, I, you could. I, I, I want to be a better reader. You could. You could. You could. There's definitely reading courses and things like that and speed reading, but I'm not the, the biggest fan of speed reading. But you know, there's. So our initial approach was okay. Well, let's help people get the grades that they need to get because we we feel pretty good at at studying. Even at, at USC when we were at USC, people were on the verge of failing, the yeah. verge of not passing. And so the director would come to us and say, hey, Eddie, Tony, we know that you guys are, um, you have your program and that you guys are trying That's to build this awesome. thing. Can you take this person under your wing? And we have, and we did, and we reversed that for that person. And he, and he, good friend of mine, I don't want to put him out there, but, and, and he's, he's a practicing provider right now. He's a That's PA awesome. in, in, in LA. And so, uh, so we thought, okay, well, let's do this. And we show that, share this with a bunch of people, right? People like Ricky, people like whoever. And then once we started doing that, People still won't get in. I'm like, oh shoot, what what is going on? Like they're not, they're not growing as individuals. They're not getting the experience. They don't know how to write. They don't know Mm -hmm. how to sell themselves. So I took a marketing class, um, and I had paid thousands of dollars to be in this mastermind of marketing to be to figure out what are the the things that what are the cognitive biases that people use Mm -hmm. to be able to sell products. Because if you could do that in a way, in the way you write, because when you're applying to school, all they have is your resume, your your grades which are very objective right yeah. it's like a b c whatever but really it's your it's your writing your personal statement how do you actually write and then it's your interview how do you interview yeah. and use cognitive biases certain confirmation bias that can actually get the get the audience that you're selling yourself to to say okay this is the person that i'm looking for because a lot of times i'll be sitting down in these mock interviews or reading a personal statement i read ricky's and I'm like, there's no way you're getting in. There's no, there's no selling going on here. Exactly. It's like you're trying to sell like a, sell yourself on a radio host or sell yourself, sell, sell shoes to you, and you're like, okay, that's just not attractive. Well, yeah, it's not I'm, you. I've always said like you could be a 4.0 student, but this C student is gonna way be an overachiever yeah. if he just knows how to sell himself. Exactly, selling. I mean, if you talk to people that make a ton of money and are very good and very successful in in business, the first thing they'll tell you is know how to sell. Exactly. If you know how to sell, 
when you get to that point in your life, you're like, okay, well, what are the things I need to say? Because you can say a million things. You've been through, you know, you're 20, whatever, 25 years old, 23 years old. And Jordan Peterson talks about this. He's like, you know, you're a complicated individual. If you want to communicate, when you're communicating between two people, you can't assume that this person knows something about you when you are this complex individual, however old you are, all these experiences, all these different, you know, minutia of yeah. whatever it is that, that completes you, Jose, that, but what is it that I have to pull out that I want communicated to this person so they truly understand who I am? Mm-hmm. Because you can pull out everything. You can show up in a tank per se with like all this experience and come out of the tank and shoot them with a gun. Or you could use the tank, which is all your experience, all the things that you have, and actually use the weapon or yeah. use the experience that you have to say, no, no, I belong at this college. Because there's people that I see, like Ricky, he belonged anywhere. He belonged at any college in, mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the nation. And if he knew how to sell that, it would have been over. Exactly. It would have been, I'm telling you. <laughs> and I see this all the time. All I'm like, you need to know how to sell yourself. And, and we'll sit down and like, do not say that. Because biases happen the same way. When somebody says something to you and it's a negative bias, mm-hmm. they hang on to that and like, oh, that's all nope. they're going to remember. Yeah, I'm not going to pick this guy because yeah, exactly. of X, Y, Z. And, and it's a game. You know, it's at the end of the day, it's a game. You have to figure out how do you get accepted. Yeah, so people have preconceived notions about anything. Exactly. And you're biased about whether you think like, oh, I am such a neutral person. I don't care like exactly. if they're this color. No. Exactly. There are preconceived notions. Exactly. That, as a society, they're already built in. We can try to unlearn them and be as neutral as possible, but that's never going to happen. 100%. Yeah. So we just like know how to keep our mouth shut. 100%. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, there's certain things you say in certain situations. There's certain things you don't. Exactly. And my dad told me that, like, to the to the nth degree. It was just like I had to learn that the hard way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, sometimes you learn it the hard way, but I mean, either way, you learn it. Yes. There's certain people that I talk to in my life. I'm like, hey, how how were you raised? How, what, what, what things did you do in your life? Have you had anybody ever do this to you, or how how were your parents to you? And you'll recognize with the people that have learned that, people that have not. Mm-hmm. And it's super important to learn those kind of lessons that, like, you need to know when to say certain things. You need to know how to how to sell yourself, per se, right? Like, it could be a relationship. It could be a job. It could be um, a business. It, yeah. could be what, it could be whatever. It could be you buying your car, yeah. right? Like, it could be whatever. You could apply that to, like, so many different things. And if you're not good at it, it's hard. And so, and I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not going to yeah. say I'm an expert at it, but I, I mean, oh. you're, we're all learning on yeah. this thing called life. And as you keep going, you talk about brain box. I definitely want to lead into the work that you're doing for the community because you did something very special in LA that now you're bringing to the San Bernardino community, which we're both part of. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in the San Bernardino County. Uh, so I am honored and thankful that you're doing this so yeah. please explain what you're doing yeah. so everybody knows yeah 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 so i just got hired to create a street medicine team for san Bernardino, um and technically it's the in- inland empire so it takes san Bernardino, rialto fontana colton upland ranch cucamonga to basically serve the homeless and a lot of people don't know what street medicine is you could talk to doctors inside the hospitals and they wouldn't even know what street mm-hmm. medicine is it's a brand new field it's been around for <clears throat> the last 20 30 years started in, in Boston, Philadelphia area, and now it's, it's working its way down here. Um, basically, it's bringing medicine to the streets, bringing medicine to the homeless. Mm. Now, what happens is homeless usually frequent the ER, and they use the ER as their primary care because they don't have a primary care. They don't have a, 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 a car to go see a primary care. And sometimes they use a free clinic that's around the, around the corner, but they don't have connected care. Mm. If somebody's, if you were sick on the street and you had some severe illness, 
that you needed to see a specialist and you're homeless and all your stuff is in a certain place that can be wiped out, stolen, taken, yeah. whatever. The chance of them leaving and, and, and getting that done is very little. Street medicine is basically we, we bring the street, we bring basically medicine to you wherever you're at. Mm-hmm. USC did it a little different. Um, and I think, I think the way we're going to be doing it is, is similar, but also different. Street medicine is so new that it, it all depends on where you're at. So you basically have to let the streets build your program. And I got this taught by one of my, my mentors, Brett Feldman in, in USC. He said, look, the way we build our program is different than Boston. Boston's super cold. Uh-huh. Boston, Boston is, has a ton of shelters in Boston, right? They have, it gets freezing cold to the point where you'll die outside if you're yeah. in the cold. So you have to have a shelter. In LA, it'll rain, it gets cold, but like if you have a warm blanket in the North Face jacket, right, you like could. you probably, you could probably, you could probably stand in a, in a tent, you yeah. could probably live it, right? In Boston, you won't see people out in the cold like no. that. You just won't see homeless. If you go to Skid Row right now in the cold in winter, you're going to see a ton of people. So then you would imagine that the street medicine program has to be built totally different in USC. Mm-hmm. San Bernardino is not like LA, right? San Bernardino is not like Boston. It's a brand new project. I'm basically trying to, to get volunteers through Cal State San Bernardino, through Valley College, um, work with the colleges around here. We're totally funded, so we go through insurance. So we basically are going to do two types of care. One is we give, we give the medicine, right? So a lot of people, they do what they, what they would say is street medicine, where they go and they give, they give care to the homeless, and they say they write a prescription on the weekend or what have you. But the problem is that a lot of homeless get, less, get lost through the cracks, and mm-hmm. the way that happens is, is that you need what's called you need what's called case management, and they, and they call it ECM. Basically, like it's it's like a extended care management. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that if you give somebody a prescription or a prescription pad, and you say, "Hey, you need to take this medication because you're sick or you have this X, infection y, on your leg, whatever whatever it may be," how do you know that they're going to pick up the medication? How do you know that they're continually taking the medication? Mm-hmm. If you say, "Hey, like this is bad enough that you need to go see, you know, this person," how do you know that they made the appointment? How they how do you know that they went to the appointment? A lot mm-hmm. of times, there's a lot of stigma. There's a lot of um, stereotyping amongst the homeless, right? Yeah, they're course. dirty. They're 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 uh, they smell. They're dangerous. They're criminals. All these kind of things. So you got to imagine that they know that they have this perceived notion too. So if they go to an office or they have to go somewhere where they haven't washed in a certain while, again, the chances, yeah. They, if you go like with you, the perceived biases, here we go again. Yeah. If you try to do that, like you don't sh- you don't shower for days or don't. You know, don't shower for days. Don't change your don't change your clothes. I'm gonna feel a certain type of way yeah. just going into some place. Go to like, a store. Like go to a store like that. Yeah. No, go to a, go to see your loved one like that. Go to see someone that you care for like that. Go to see a doctor like Embarrassed. that. Embarrassed. It's yeah. You feel that way, right? Now that's taken away from all the pre the other things that are going on with the homeless that we have no clue about, which is which is also interesting to me because, which is why I'm actually sitting at Valley right now is to to try to change the the, the perception of the homeless. Uh, through videography and film and, and so on and so forth um, in social media. But what I'm, what I'm trying to do with street medicine is build this program that's specific to San Bernardino. I was at the city council meeting two days ago and so many people were going up from the, from the, fa- from the uh, community talking about how homeless is running rampant and how there's substance abuse and how this mm-hmm. is not a substance abuse issue or a homeless issue, it's a mental issue with our company and what we, what we do is we can give antipsychotic medications. Mm-hmm. We can give, um, we have a, a, a team that's, that's, 
designated to make sure that they don't fall through the cracks. If I give somebody a prescription, they make sure that they actually pick up the prescription, mm-hmm. that they take the prescription. If they don't There's have follow up, yeah. If they don't have an ID, if they don't have a birth certificate, and they say, "Hey, you want to be in a house?" Yes, let's get you a housing voucher. What do you need for a housing voucher? You need certain identification. You need certain qualifications. You need to make sure that you can pay the rent. Did you apply for general relief? Did you apply for social security? We have all that tied, tied, and we follow to make sure that we have housing navigators to make sure that they actually get into a house. Because the whole goal of you know, giving somebody medicine is to make sure that well, it doesn't the whole, become cyclical. Yeah, the whole reason why you're giving medicine, right, is to make sure that they're healthy, but not only healthy, but healthy to be functional in society. They can hold a job. They can hold the house. Because what happens is in San Bernardino, there's a, there's a 36-page paper on their initiative on how to solve homelessness and, and very little in that paper talks about medication or just medical care in general. Wow. But if you think about, if you think about the, the constituent that said that, that was saying that uh, this is a mental, issue, a mental issue, right? If you have someone that's actively psychotic and you get them a house, right? You build all these houses in San Bernardino, you build condo, build whatever you want and you put them there. What do you, how do you know that they're actually going to stay there? Yeah. What if they have some type of psychotic break and they're not stable on their medication or they weren't even started on medication and they just they just leave the place. Now, all the resources that San Bernardino used to actually make that happen doesn't happen. Doesn't, exactly. And it gets wasted, right? And so now who pays for that? Taxpayer. You and I. Ah. <laughs> you and I pay for that, right? Because of tax, taxes. Who pays for the, for the homeless individual that uses the, primary, uses the ER for the primary care? They're not paying the bill. We pay the bill. Exactly. So we're trying to basically solve that by giving them the preventative care that they need on the streets to make sure that they don't have to go to the ER, that we can get them in-house, we can get, keep them on their medication, we make sure that they don't fall through the cracks, and, and we go from there. Because at the end of the day, and, and on top of that, we can advocate for these for these patients at at a different level because we'll know them more, right? So these people that I, I love the people that go on the weekends and and serve them. I love the people that come and give food to them and and so on and so forth. And they and a lot of them know them and they care for them from a from from a different aspect of medicine. They care from a, from a humanistic standpoint, and I love that mm-hmm. um, from a from a. If you look at the the Maslow's hierarchy and needs, yeah. food and shelters on there, right? And they give food and they give them shelter, what have you, and in there, one thing that one thing that people I can't remember who told me this. Maslow's hierarchy needs it goes like basic needs like food and shelter and mm-hmm. just like oxygen to live. They say there's one level below uh, that oh, wow. that 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 applies to homelessness. And this is an official. This is just what I was what I was like told one time. And, and the reason why, and I'll give you an example, um, is independence. So you'll have a homeless individual on the on the streets that is so accustomed to be on the streets that doesn't want to go into a shelter, doesn't want to go into a to a nursing home or go somewhere that he's going to have his independence taken from him because they tell him when you can leave, when you can come, mm. when you can get your food, when you get your medication. That's that's taking away your independence. And even though that person is extremely sick because we've had patients die on the streets that will not go get help because they don't want their independence to be taken from them, which means that they will take their independence Mm-hmm. and die for it wow. before going and getting shelter or or whatever maybe or food from this place they'd rather die for their independence and so if we understand that and if we understand that from our level and we can come together as a community and and and, and have the input i feel that we can make a difference and i think you know um, there, there's so many aspects of this i can go on and on about this yeah. but one of the biggest things that i wanted to do and i and i called um our connection at Sarai mm-hmm. at, at, at Cal State San Bernardino about this was that I wanted to change the per- their perception of homelessness because a lot of people, like I said before, they see homelessness and they see them as 
these individuals that are possibly dangerous, mm-hmm. possibly, you know, they do alcohol or they do drugs or they have a mental issue or what have you. They have all these different things. They just all these the labels. Resources. Yeah, all these labels, right? And I'm like, okay, well, I mean, from a, from a very superficial perspective, like there's a lot of people that do drugs in houses. A lot of people do alcohol in houses. There's a lot of people that are domestic abuse and criminals that are in houses, right? A lot of homeless don't commit don't commit homicide. There's just it's just like the stats in comparison to people that live in houses. But nonetheless, in USC they did a study, a long study for like years and years and years. This is recently started in 2000. I think it ended recently in like uh, within 2015. I could be wrong, but it was like a 13 to 15 year study. And the question was, what is the most common cause of homelessness? Yeah, is it substance abuse? Right? Is it alcohol? Is it um, mental health issues? The psych issue? Is it a job loss? Whatever it may be. What is it? The what most, the most common cause of homelessness is a terrible childhood. Wow. Most of these people have just terrible, were dealt terrible hands. That they're, they were raped when they were a kid. Their, their parents abused them. Mm. Their parents gave them up. They were in and out of, out of uh, foster, foster care. care. In their foster care, they were raped. And they have to deal with this throughout their lives. And they can't, when you're a kid, you can't choose who your parents are. That's just what it is. Now, granted, obviously, there's going to be people, be people that are homeless that are, didn't have a, a, a bad childhood. And it was just their decision, what have you. And, and I believe that's where, you know, your humility comes out. And you have to give people a second chance. And mm-hmm. you have to be loving and, and so on and so forth. But a lot of these people have terrible childhoods. The first thing I always say when I when I talk to individuals, I say, "How long have you been homeless? I've been homeless for seventeen years, wow. twenty years, whatever. What happened twenty years ago?" And they'll tell me, and it's usually something that has to do with their family dynamic. Yeah. And then I always ask about the family dy- dynamic because I want to know, and it it makes me. I look at my you son. Humanize him. Yeah, I look at my son, and I'm like. Man, could I ever do that to my son? And what would that do to my son? I do something very small to my son, out of character, and if I like raise my voice at him, and and he'll back down, and he'll because what they found too, what happens in the brain, um, they call these little T's and big T's. Mm. Big traumas, little traumas. Big trauma being like somebody hit you, or they raped you, or whatever. Little traumas can be like verbal abuse, mm-hmm. like very always telling like you're worth nothing. There was a guy I remember. Oh. There was a guy that I that I saw. Um, he ended, up, he ended up passing away in the hospital. He was 27 years old. His dad, when he was 14 years old, told me he was worth nothing. He, f- he fell off a skateboard, broke his ankle. When he's like, you cost me everything. You're, you're worth nothing yeah. to me. The guy ends up gaining like a ton of weight, giving up his life, basically ends up going to like 400 pounds. Oh, we saw the domino effect. Oh, there. yeah, it was like terrible. And then his dad was the one that was there at the end of, end of his life. And he would tell us the story the dad told yeah. us. He said, I felt guilty that I told him that. But what they were saying, what, what I was trying to get to is that what it does to the brain, the little T's and big T's, big traumas as in domestic violence mm-hmm. or, or rape or what have you, little traumas where you yell at somebody or you, you know, you, you uh, degrade them in some way from a verbal standpoint, it has the same effect on the brain. Mm. So these children that go through very severe things, or even if it's just, just, just not treating your kid the way or talking to your kid a certain way, which is why I'm very careful when I talk to my kid Mm. I think about this a lot. I'm like, how is my kid perceiving this? It's very important to me, and I and I and I want that perception to be seen, which yeah. is why I, I came here today at, at Valley College because I, I appreciate them giving us this studio, and I and I want to be able to bring the film and, and the photography to be able to tell that story amongst the people, so people in the community could say, 
you know, they can't relate to substance abuse. Like, ah, oh, they're, they're using drugs. Ah, oh, they're drinking alcohol. Ah, oh, they, they, you know, they deserve that. They're a criminal. You can't really relate to that because not all of us criminals, not all of us mm-hmm. drink and abuse alcohol, not all of us have done substance abuse. But when you, when you hear some of the stories, I can, tell, I can go for days, you, you hear some of the stories that they went through as a child. Yeah, if you that have, you can identify. If with. you have kids, or even if just you as a as an individual, you can be like, man, mm-hmm. thank God for my parents, or thank God that I went like this. There was we went, we had a conference at USC, a street one of the first street medicine events over there, and uh, people in the community were like mad that we were doing this work for for the for the homeless, and this person came by and he's like, you guys are giving all this medication to blah, 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 all these to the homeless, and you're advocating for the homeless. Blah, blah. He said, what is, the, what is the cure to homeless? Like, what do we have to do? And then somebody came up, up to the mic, uh, one of the guys from Boston. He's like, just treat your kids better. Wow. <laughs> it's like, it's legit what it is. You know, it starts from, from childhood. You know, That's and so, interesting. And so I, I really want to change the perception of what people have on homelessness because you can't, you, there's very little you can do about that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and granted, it's not a, a pretty look for your city and so on and so forth, which is not our advocacy. I'm not advocating to have tents everywhere on our city. Yeah. I'm not advocating to have trash every, all along our all along the sidewalks. I'm not advocating for any of that. And I don't think anybody would, right? Not, nobody in our in our yeah. industry. But granted, you know, you're you're dealt with the hands that you are. This, this is the way it is right now. And then what can we do about it? Our goal is to get them in houses and get them functional, get them back into to society. When I was in Boston, I basically went around Boston with a, with a backpack and I socks. I saw those pictures. Yeah. <laughs> I, went, I went through Boston with, with a backpack and socks, and I was, I was interviewing people on a certain medication that helps uh, reduce their craving. And it was crazy. Some of the stories that you would hear that these people were no longer, you know, taking uh, a, certain, a certain medication, they were no longer abusing certain drugs, fentanyl, opioids, whatever it may be, then they're functional, they're functional people of the society they're you know they're holding a job yeah. they're holding their apartment and i'm like just going i just want to hear these stories you know i'm like going over there and i'm giving them socks uh people that are still homeless but they're in and out of shelters but they're still working they're working their way to being they able to dependent. being able to own a house or own yeah. an apartment which is expensive in boston but but nonetheless like you you see these stories and that that's the goal right the goal is to get to help get these these individuals back to living the life that they want some of them move their kids. Some of them, they want to be part of their kids' lives. Yeah, It's like that, you know? It's like that, those are the things that we're looking for. And, and my goal is in San Bernardino is to get people together, to be able to show what we can do and what we can and what our services are and and, and have that influence on the community. Because for me, I, I want, I've never seen my per, myself being part of like a clinic where I'm just doing the same thing. Over like and over. Rat, you like actually want to do some change. No, it's like a and, change, man. I, and I, I have to. We can talk about this for hours and we can definitely hear the passion. And I want to finish off this podcast, uh, obviously by inviting the people that are listening to this podcast to reach out to you. We're going to go sure. ahead and put your handles in the description below and you're going to go ahead and mention them right now because you need the help. You could do this on your own, but it would be so much better if you got the community involved. But the question that I want to finish it off and you kind of already answered it is the podcast name is Echale. In that in Spanish, you hear it a lot, Echale Ganas. I also want to take away and translate it to English, which is to put something in. What do you want to leave? What is your paw print in this world? Mm. This is a, that's a great question. I don't even know if I've ever been asked this before. I listen to, because uh, 
if you when you when you think about that question, you think about you have to come to terms with mortality, yeah. which is what a lot of people are very scared of. Which I try. That is one of the my, the most driving factors in my life. I think about myself every time I go to sleep. I can't remember who said this. Once <sighs> I said it, I thought to myself, I'm like, I think about that every day. Every Same. time I go to sleep, I'm like, I have one less day on this earth. I'm one step closer to my end than I am to my beginning. Mm-hmm. And I think to myself, okay, well, what is it that I want to do with my life? I want to make sure that I make the most of my life. I wake up at four. I go to the gym. I study. I was studying in a in a chair, and I'm like, okay, why why don't why can't I be walking and studying? Walk, study, listen to podcasts. I learn from six to seven. I cook from seven to eight. I I clean eight to eight thirty. My son wakes up. Everything's clean for him. He asks me for breakfast, and I'm ready to make him breakfast, and I'm I'm ready to go, and I'm ready to be present because if I wait and I sleep in all day, past my eight hours, past my six hours, or I whatever it may be, if I, I I waste that. The time that he's awake, I'm busy doing the things that I need to do. And I got that from my brother. My brother did that really early in, in his, when I used to see him with his daughter, wake up early, clean, cook, mm-hmm. all that. So when the kids wake up, you're there. You're there present with them and you're totally present. I, I heard this one thing from Inky Johnson one time and, uh, and he was on a plane <clears throat> and he comes from like a rough childhood. He's a, yeah. He was a football player. And he was being flown out to like an all-star game or something. And he was like talking about being in the bathroom. And the bathroom basically said, leave, please leave the bathroom better than better than what yeah. it was when you came in. And I think in my life, in everything that I do, I want to leave my community, my son, my family, the people that interact with me better than they were before they found me. So a better place than it was before. And I always think about that. I could be in a freaking kitchen and the, the napkin, or I can be in like Starbucks and the napkin drops on the ground. I think to myself, leave it better than where you were before. <laughs> I pick up the napkin. It's like, that's not right. It should be better. Or I clean, clean something real quick and like put it down. Like yeah. that's, that's the legacy I want. And I want to be able to, to do that for others so others can do that passing on. I love that. Thank you so much. Eddie, where can people find you? Where can they reach out? So at Instagram, Eddie Manacho. um, Healthcare in Action is our is our organization under SCAN. Uh, so you can look at healthcareinaction.org, which is uh, our organization for street medicine. We have street medicine teams in, in Hollywood, Long Beach, uh, in LA, one now being created in San Mateo, and we're going to have a few here in San Bernardino and Riverside. But if you want to follow, follow me for the street medicine gig and what we're going to do, it's going to be coming through me. So you can follow me on my Instagram at Eddie Manacho, and uh, I, I run everything through there, man. Thank you so much for your time, hermano. I appreciate it. Gracias por escuchar Echale Podcast. If you made it this far, I ask of you one thing. If this podcast made you think, reflect, or enter an existential crisis, then share it with me on social media. Nothing would make me happier than knowing that these stories had a real impact. Nos vemos el próximo martes with more stories and más chisme. This was Echale Podcast.